Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. Well, friends, welcome to worship on this fourth Sunday after Epiphany. Please know how very welcome you are right here with us. And it's always my prayer that you will find comfort, inspiration, and challenge during our time together. And then go out into the week well reminded that you are a beloved child of God. And then have all of your priorities flow from from a holy center. So I want to start off today by telling you one of my husband Clint's old army stories. Now, this is no regular war story, as some of you in here surely have to tell. This is a story of one of my husband's early experiences as a first-year army psychiatrist. And I think it's one of the more interesting because it's so outrageous. As the sole psychiatrist at one of the Army's most isolated and unhappy places, Fort Irwin, also known as the National Training Center, 40 miles west of Barstow, California, in the Mojave Desert, Clint was always on call. And in his brief tenure there, he was familiar with soldiers becoming suicidal because of receiving a Dear John letter. He knew how to field GMA, I want to go home situations. He was accustomed to depression and anxiety and family stress in the units that would rotate through this post where they would come to learn high-tech desert warfare training. What he was not used to was a non-military person making his way onto the post and interfering with the troops' training. Now, Fort Irwin occupies an expanse of land the size of Rhode Island, situated on the northwest side of I-15. One evening, while at home, Clint received a call from the post's hospital because a man suffering from what a layperson might term a psychotic break on I-15, en route from Los Angeles to Las Vegas, wandered off the freeway, made his way out into the desert, and encountered troops in training. He proceeded to wrestle an M-16 away from one of the soldiers and presented the unit with the general difficulties of dealing with someone frenzied, illogical, unsafe, and not in his right mind. And somehow these soldiers disarmed the man, loaded him into a a Humvee, and got him to the military hospital. And of course, then they called the very busy post-psychiatrist. And I remember listening to a swirl of phone calls that evening. Clint sounded beleaguered. He was busy with his own soldiers, and right now he had to make decisions regarding a civilian someone he had really no authority to treat. And I remember that Clint called the county sheriff that night who actually had the authority in this case. And the sheriff would have gotten the man to a civilian psychiatrist where hopefully his symptoms would be alleviated and he could be restored to wholeness 
and restored to society. You've probably all encountered people who are not in their right minds sometimes. If you walk any city streets, you will encounter them living on the very fringes of society. They're crying out things on the sidewalks that don't make a lot of sense, and often their pain is more than evident etched into their faces. I've actually attended churches where people still believe folks suffering mental illness are victims of demonic possession. Given all the similarities in our scripture passage, um, like today's, and in all simplicity, these well-meaning church folks think that their response is to lay hands on these people, to cast out the literal demons or the impure spirits, as our version text, as our version of the text reads, and then be done with it after no more than a prayer. But the scriptures are calling us to so much more. We modern people make assumptions about scripture references to demons. We like to tame these passages and, and put them in our postmodern contexts. Most of us, because of our scientific worldview, want to say that that man in our text today was suffering from some sort of mental illness that Jesus delivered him from not really an exorcist-type demon that made the man's head spin and puke green and wet the floor. But that's not to say that dark forces do not possess or affect people either. The Catholic Church really does have exorcist priests and extensive documentation. But I don't think that's primarily what this reading is pointing us to today. Actually, I want to unpack some of the levels of meaning in this passage because there's a lot more going on than what appears on the surface. The basic point is this. Jesus restored the man to wholeness. You know, this demon possession versus mental illness discussion and the interpretation of this passage is superfluous. More than anything, there's a socio cultural undercurrent in today's reading that is most instructive for us as ones who follow in the way of Jesus. More than anything, what Jesus is doing in this passage is challenging, unmasking the structures of social existence, much as we must too do too in a world where people are increasingly forced to the margins and the middle class shrinks. We, like Jesus, must challenge the dehumanizing forces at work in this world today that are no less than demonic. And you know these forces. They are responsible for the abject brokenness in this world. To name a few, they are greed and good old boys networks and neglect and the wielding of power, sexual and otherwise, cheating, and the destruction of the environment for short-term economic gain, or oppressing one group for the profit of another. Genocide. Just turn on the news. Well, our passage today is short, but it's rich. You know, listener, go back and read that passage again for contrasts. First of all, Jesus and the disciples that he had just called were they went to the synagogue at Capernaum, 
And the text tells us that Jesus taught there and that he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. So Jesus' teaching here is contrasted with the scribes' teaching. Now, the scribes of that day were the ones who copied the scriptures. And in doing so, they became experts in the law, essentially lawyers and scholars. And they were also able to recite the opinion of many rabbis on a given topic. So we have this contrast between the scribes' erudition and Jesus' authority. What got people's attention, I think, is that what Jesus taught was backed up with actions. This is where his authority came in. This is why he was different and why Mark uses that word authority. He cast out a demon, an impure spirit. He touched the untouchables. He healed. He performed miracles. He sat with sinners and tax collectors. And this rattled the old guard as he upended and challenged the old ways. The scribes and the Pharisees found his behavior offensive because they were obsessed with their own versions of purity and holiness. Maybe they were jealous. Well, there was this freshness to Jesus' approach. The scribes and the Pharisees' teaching had become stale. And this set up all the conflicts that Scripture unfolds, conflicts that ultimately led to Jesus' crucifixion. Old wineskins, you see, do not hold new wine. We can all think of the ways people are stigmatized, marginalized, or ignored when they are ill. In biblical cultures, illness was often thought of as a result of someone's sin. And sometimes it is, but not always. And even so, it didn't matter when Jesus encountered a person. In the scribes' world, sick people, people who were not in their right minds, were to be at the bottom. It was just how society was ordered. But Jesus constantly challenged that. I think of my stepbrother, David, who died back in 1991 at the height of the AIDS epidemic. In his final days, nothing but skin and bones, covered only by Medicaid, the hospital in Philadelphia relegated him to the room at the very end of the hall, where he was all but ignored, stigmatized, judged by the staff maybe because he had only minimally paying Medicaid, maybe because some folks believed his choices had caused his illness, maybe ignorance and fear of the disease's communication. Even the priest wouldn't come see him. And I think, where was Jesus in that? You see, the story is about Jesus accepting this ostracized man with the unclean spirit. And then his act of confronting this demon restored the man to community. This is the pattern of the miracle stories in the Gospels. Jesus gets involved with the lepers and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the ill and the possessed, and he touches them. And in doing so, he restores them to community. 
The real discussion is not whether or not the miracle really happened or whether or not this particular man suffered from demonic possession or what we would today call schizophrenia. Those discussions are superfluous. Mark arranged the material in his gospel um, in a particular way, intending to lead us to the real meaning of the story that Jesus always seeks to restore the social wholeness to the sick or impure denied by the order of the day. This was the enactment of the kingdom of God. We have ample uh, opportunity to, even today, to do likewise. Well, since I've been here, I've noticed we have a fairly sedate service here at the Church of the Beatitudes week to week. We're largely similar to one another, a little money, good Protestant sensibilities. Many of you have been together for years and have seen a lot go down at this church, and you know, by and large, how to behave. Nothing unusual typically happens in worship. None of you yell things out while I preach like some do at my little Scottsdale church. And usually that's just a hallelujah or some sort of an inside joke. You know, we sing two or three hymns. We hear, hear Lauren's evocative music. And I preach a standard academic sermon without much variation or creativity. But what if, what if one day someone stumbled in here and began to cry out loudly while we were doing our usual thing? Maybe yelling out something Thing religiously tinged, offensive. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, O Holy One of God. Would we escort them to the back of the church, uh, call the county sheriff, and send them on their way? Or would we engage, give them a cup of coffee, and seek somehow to restore that person to wholeness? Some churches have effective ministries in place for this and have resources for such a mission. Once years ago, when I was a member of Prescott United Methodist Church, a man stumbled in off the street and into the Sunday morning service. He reeked of alcohol, was unshaven, dirty. He made his way up to the front pew just after the service had started. And some of the church people who worked in the church's street ministry to those experiencing homelessness recognized him and went up and joyfully welcomed him during the passing of the peace. And he smiled happily and then promptly laid down on the front pew and fell asleep, loudly snoring all through the sermon. The pastor let him sleep. Well, you can imagine the controversy that followed. Some in the congregation fussed and clucked and said, well, a drunk had no business being in church. He should sober up and then come in. After all, we have children in here. I was glad I wasn't the pastor. I remember the pastor unconcerned so much with public opinion, quoting St. Augustine. St. Augustine said that the church is not a hotel for saints. Rather, it's a hospital for sinners. The pastor used that incident to expand the church's social justice ministry, which, among many other things, helped 
people with alcoholism into recovery. And during this pastor's tenure, that church became a hospital for sinners, and it went on to create and maintain a vibrant street ministry called the Coalition for Compassion and Justice, the Open Door Program. Now, before I run out of time, I want to finish unpacking the scripture today, just so you know a little bit about how Mark's gospel unfolds. Mark, you see, carefully arranged his material. His gospel starts with John the Baptist, who is preparing the way of the Lord. And then Jesus gets baptized by John, and we learn that God is well-pleased with Jesus. And then the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And then Jesus comes to Galilee, calls disciples, and proclaims the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Here, this is what I want you to hear. The orders of the, this world are about to be overturned. Today's passage is the first miracle in Mark, which shows Jesus' authority over demons or impure spirits and illness. And in this miracle, the demon recognizes Jesus for who he is. And this is what we call the recognition theme in Mark. While people do not recognize who Jesus is yet, the unseen realm certainly does. The evil undergirding the status quo and the power structures in place were about to be confronted. And Mark's gospel climaxes when Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. But before that, people and the demons, though they know who Jesus is, are told to keep quiet. The demon in this passage doesn't actually keep quiet, though. It goes out screaming loudly. The old guard, you know, puts up a fight. So the old English teacher in me sees the secrecy or shouting demons theme mostly as a literary symbolic device that pushes the gospel to its climax for the big reveal. Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. The Spirit, after much secrecy and waiting, opens Peter's eyes to this epiphany. But the problem is, the disciples and the people were not yet ready to understand Jesus' real significance. They wanted a political king. They wanted a bread king. They wanted health and wealth. And they could not yet understand that he wanted to be the king of their hearts. And to be able to do so, he would have to die. He would have to show them, walk with them, and by his birth, life, and death, change their paradigm. But for now, at this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus enjoined them in secrecy. And so our passage today ends um, saying that because of this event in the synagogue, Jesus' fame began to spread to the surrounding region of Galilee. Other translations use the word rumor instead of fame. And what do you suppose that the people were saying about Jesus? The text doesn't tell us. We can only imagine. Perhaps that Jesus actually taught with authority, unlike the scribes who he put to shame. Well, that's an embarrassing rumor. Perhaps people were saying that he had the power to exercise demons. Perhaps they fussed and clucked all over Galilee because he engaged someone who really didn't belong in that synagogue that day. 
someone likely at the bottom of the social heap. And maybe this man, too, was reeking of alcohol. Whatever the rumors were, whatever Jesus said that day disrupted the way of the world. Oh, yes, his, his words spoke deeply to the hearts of some. Others, however, preferred the status quo. Temple tables were about to be overturned, and prophets would soon be disrupted. And for this, he and the martyrs and the activists following in his way would be crucified. It's the same story in every age. It's, it's the story of our political world today. Except this time, we are the ones called to disrupt the modern-day demons. We're the ones called to the paradigm shift. I asked one of my seminary professors one day if there really were demons. I asked, um, you know, those kind that are, you know, the, the green puking, the floor wetting, the head spinning demons, a la the exorcist, the kind that actually possess people. And he said, yes. And I said, well, how come we don't encounter them like that? None of you, after all, as of yet, have called me for an exorcism. And no one in my Scottsdale church either in all the years I've been there. And the professor went on to say that, well, demons blend into our culture and infect differently here because of our scientific worldview. Those of you who have real war stories to tell, though, you have seen raw evil. You have seen demonic undergirding, terrible darkness in the clashes for power. And those of you who watch refugees, the ones without a home, get turned away, you too see demonic undergirding, but you may not recognize it as such. We get so caught up in life's illusions. The professor went on to say that when he was a missionary in less developed places, parts of the global south in particular, he said those places have worldviews that admitted things unseen. And he had indeed see, seen something like demon possession in The Exorcist. I don't want to end this today with you all creeped out about demons. What, what I do want to end with is that Jesus came to bring great light, a light of restoration, the light of epiphany, a light that encompasses his followers. We, like Jesus, always seek are to seek the restoration of people's wholeness in all ways that we can, here in our church, in our workplaces, our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our voting. And when our turn comes to receive the care of others, because there are seasons in life that we must, let us remember how good that is for our souls. We, like Jesus, must challenge the dehumanizing forces at work in this world today. We must touch the untouchables, engage the one who does not fit in, speak against abuses, stand with people who are in pain without judgment. That which is broken can be made whole and restored to community. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It's what it looked like to the man who had an unclean spirit. So may thy kingdom come indeed. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's show. 
You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at BeatitudesChurch.org backslash online dash giving. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society.